Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for May 8, 2023. Here's today's rundown. What should you do if you discover a physician on your staff has been performing procedures without privileges? It doesn't happen often, but physician and attorney John K. Hall explains how to be prepared if it does. Today, we'll also hear from healthcare attorney David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Dr. John Zellum, and Falana Houston, who has the Monitor Monday legislative update. Now, here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news to report, and so we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hershey. He is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Another day with a few stories to report. First up, The OIG recently fined an inpatient rehab facility in Louisiana $1.2 million for inappropriate admissions to their facility. But that's not what was unusual in this case. What stood out to me is that not only was the facility fined, but the rehab physician who reviewed and approved the admissions and provided ongoing care was also fined $575,000. Now, granted, I haven't read every OIG report, but this is the first time I recall seeing a physician charged with making improper admission decisions. Now, the report does note the physician reportedly put undue pressure on the families to be admitted, so a penalty seems justified. It should also be noted that this case was a whistleblower case with two staff members of the facility earning a 20% reward. This case makes me wonder how the OIG would view a physician who admits inpatients to the hospital knowing the two midnight rule was not met, but was encouraged to liberally use inpatient status or to count delays in care as necessary days. Will a UR nurse be the next whistleblower getting a very nice payout? Moving on, I also talked in the past about ED visit downgrades done by payers when their proprietary tools come up with a different visit level than the facility or doctor build. One such tool is the UHC EDC Analyzer. And we know that UHC sells this tool to both payers and hospitals to use. Now, last week, I heard a totally unsubstantiated rumor that the version of the tool that they sell to payers is different than that sold to hospitals. Now, if your hospital uses this tool to designate your ED facility fees, watch your claims closely. If the payers are still downgrading your visits, there's something maybe very nefarious going on. Now, some of you may know LeapFrog Group recently released their hospital safety grades. If you did well, I'm sure your people are screaming it from the rooftops. But let me tell you about one hospital in Chicago. Roseland Community Hospital was the only hospital in Chicago to receive a LeapFrog grade of F. But here's the catch. Roseland also received a B rating from the Loan Institute, which does not look just at a few select measures, but also looks at the hospital's social responsibility, community benefit, equity, and inclusivity. Looking at the whole picture can sometimes provide a better measure of a hospital's true quality of care. And speaking of community benefit, last week I was in Rapid City visiting Monument Health. During my talk, we discussed the CMS proposal to make the Codes for Homelessness a CC in 2024. 
But here's the thing. It's easy to report the social determinants, but it's much harder to address them. But Monument Health has a social worker, Haley Twightmeyer, who is all in on not just reporting these determinants, but also addressing them. She goes out into her community, finds the resources patients need, and establishes partnerships. Now, you can tell from her passion that she loves what she does. Every hospital needs a Haley. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. Earlier this year, I reported on the new extrapolation rules for all audits, including RACs, UPICs, TPEs, CERTs, etc. You know the alphabet soup. The biggest change was that no extrapolation may be run if the error rate is under 50%. Well, this was an exciting and unexpected new protection for healthcare providers, but I did not ever see it in action, but now I have, and I'm going to tell you about it. A client of mine, an internal medicine facility in Alabama, received a notice of overpayment for over $3 million. This is the first case in which I saw this 50% error rate rule in action. Normally, I always tell clients that the first two levels of appeals in Medicare provider appeals are rubber stamps. In other words, don't expect to win. The quick and the entity that conducted the audit saying you owe money usually aren't going to overturn themselves. However, in this case, we were partially favorable at the quick level. And partially favorable normally means mostly unfavorable. However, this partially favorable decision took the error rate from over 50% to under 50%. We regrouped. Obviously, we were going to appeal because the new extrapolation was still over a million dollars. However, before our ALJ hearing, we received correspondence from Palmetto that said our overpayment was zero. Now, confused, we wrote to the ALJ pointing out that the Palmetto said our balance was zero. The ALJ wrote back saying that certainly the money has already been recouped. And the practice would get a refund if he reversed the denials. Okay, we said, and attended a telephonic hearing. We were unsuccessful at the hearing, and the ALJ upheld the alleged overpayment of over $1 million. We argued at that hearing that the extrapolation should be thrown out due to the error rate being under 50%. But the judge still ruled against us, saying that CMS has the right to extrapolate and the courts have upheld CMS's ability to extrapolate. Okay, but what about the new rule? Later, we contacted Palmetto to confirm what the zero balance meant. The letter read as if we did not owe anything, yet we had an ALJ decision mandating us to pay over $1 million. So this was a serious juxtaposition. After many hours of chasing answers on hold with multiple telephone answers from Palmetto, we learned that apparently because the error rate dropped below 50% after the quick level, Palmetto wrote off the nominal balance that was owed, about like $1,000 or so. Since an extrapolation was no longer allowed, the minuscule amount that Palmetto thought we owed wasn't enough apparently to pursue. However, the letter sent us sent to us from Palmetto did not explain 
hey, we're writing off your overpayment because the error rate fell under 50%. No, it was totally vague. We didn't even know if it were true. It took us reaching out to Palmetto and getting an email confirmation that Palmetto had written off the alleged overpayment due to the error rate dropping. Even the ALJ misinterpreted the letter, which tells me Palmetto needs to revise their notices of write-offs. If Palmetto unilaterally dismisses or writes off any balance that is allegedly owed, the letter should explicitly explain, explain this because providers and attorneys are not accustomed to receiving correspondence from a MAC, CMS, Palmetto, or any other auditing entity with good news. If we get good news from an auditing entity, that correspondence should be explicit. Regardless, this was a huge win for me and my client, who was positively ecstatic with the outcome. Tune in next week, during which I will tell a story of how we battled successfully a PTAM action against a facility of nine specialists due to a disgruntled employee who tried to blow the whistle on my specialists and their facility. Falsely. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of Nelson Mullins. And uh, coming up in about 10 minutes after the hour, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Philana Houston. You're going to hear from Dr. John K. Hall, who's standing by to report our lead story, and Dr. John Zellum, who is also standing by to give his analysis of the top stories we're reporting today. You are listening to Monitor Monday. Hospitals face ongoing challenges when protecting their revenues, especially in environments with high expenses and declining payer reimbursements. To address these challenges, hospitals must ensure that their financial systems, processes, and policies are efficient and accurate for the services they deliver to patients. During this webcast, senior healthcare consultant Stephanie Volante will review best practices, guiding principles, and recommendations for charge master management to help your hospital staff appropriately implement change management controls and operate with efficiency and standardization. You'll gain insight into how to review comprehensive components of the charge master to validate appropriate HICPIC and revenue code assignments for chargeable services. The webcast, Managing a Compliant Charge Master, the Backbone of Your Revenue, is now available on demand at the Rack University Bookstore. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, as I say every Monday morning at about the same time, what could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, last week I mentioned that CMS is announcing a new approach to penalties applied under the price transparency rule. Before I get to those, I think it's helpful to try to bring some clarity to two potentially confusing pricing provisions. In the last few years, there have been two sets of, of, of laws. One, the price transparency regulations, which are found at 45 CFR Part 180. These rules are different from the No Surprises Act. The No Surprises Act focuses primarily on making sure patients going to an in-network facility or obtaining emergency care out of network are not balance billed. But the No Surprises Act also requires provision of good faith estimates for a broader range of patients. Right now, good faith estimates only go to patients who aren't using insurance to pay for their care. They're either uninsured or choosing not to use their insurance. The price transparency regulations, which were issued in November of 2019, are different. Rather than applying to a specific patient encounters, 
they set up broad requirements for hospitals to post information about their pricing. For example, CMS has specified 70 shoppable services that must be posted on the web and gives the hospital the opportunity to choose up to an additional 230 services for a total of 300 shoppable services that are posted. As the name might suggest, a shoppable service is some kind of planned medical care, something you can schedule, like a knee replacement or delivery of a child. I guess you can't exactly schedule delivery of a child, but you can plan for it. So in addition, there's a requirement to make tremendous volumes of reimbursement data about nearly all of your services available in a machine-readable format. Among the information that one must provide are the gross charges for a service, as well as specified negotiated contract rates for each payer, and you must specifically identify the highest and lowest negotiated charge. Finally, you have to provide information about your discounted cash price. In short, you need to provide a lot of data in different formats, some easily accessible to the public, others readable by computer. Now, when the price transparency regulations were first issued, the penalty was $300 a day, leaving many organizations to figure that they'd simply pay the fine rather than post all of this information. As a result, CMS has now increased the penalty so it can reach $5,500 a day for a hospital with 550 beds. In short, the government wanted some teeth behind this requirement. Now that there are teeth, the government is going to bite away. Last week, the government indicated that it was going to continue heightened emphasis on the price transparency rules. CMS has now announced that they've issued 730 warnings and 269 requests for corrective action plans. They're now conducting approximately 200 comprehensive reviews of hospitals each month. Going forward, hospitals are expected to submit a corrective action plan within 45 days of a request for one and come into full compliance within 90 days of the date they were asked to provide the correction plan. In other words, if you take the full 45 days to write the plan, you have 45 more to implement it. Historically, the government was issuing warning letters before demanding a corrective action plan. Now, however, if CMS feels that an organization did not make a true effort to comply with the rule, they're not going to issue any warning. You'll get an immediate demand for a corrective action plan and compliance within 90 days of that demand. The bottom line is that if you haven't been paying attention to the price transparency requirements, it's time. Chuck, if your thoughts about price transparency compliance are driven by Wilson Phillips and you will just hold on for one more day, don't. Because if you do, things will most definitely not go your way. Back to you. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. And up next the Monitor Monday Legislative Update with Falana Houston. The Legislative Update is sponsored by Zealous. Zealous is modernizing the healthcare financial experience by bridging the gaps and aligning interests across payers, providers, and healthcare consumers. Here now is Falana Houston. Thanks, Chuck. Good morning. It's no secret that one of the largest issues facing the healthcare industry today is the rising cost of care and the decreasing ability of Americans to pay for it. 
While frequent listeners of Zealous' legislative update may be familiar with the alarming state of medical debt in America that come with those high costs, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, recently published a report on a lesser-known payment method that it says is contributing to this medical debt epidemic, medical credit cards for patients. Medical credit cards for patients and other similar high-cost specialty financial products, as they are often referred to, are different than a regular credit card. They can only be used to pay for medical services. Historically, they've been offered to cover services and procedures that perhaps your insurance did not pay for, such as certain elective services or those that are deemed not medically necessary, dental or cosmetic procedures. But in recent years, they've expanded to cover many healthcare charges, even those covered in some part by insurance. They typically include a deferred interest rate for a certain period of time. In theory, this can be an attractive payment option for both providers and patients alike. A patient may receive necessary or desired care without having to wait to be able to afford the entire bill at once. The provider is paid quickly, and the administrative burden of, of, of attempting to collect bills is removed. But in practice, the Biden administration has warned that these credit cards can, quote, create financial ruin. The report issued by the CFPB found that during the study period of 2018 to 2020, consumers charged $23 billion in healthcare expenses to these patient medical credit cards and paid about $1 billion in deferred interest payments. The study found bills ranging anywhere from as low as $35 up to $40,000. It also found that if patients do not pay off the amount charged during the promotional period, the interest rates they'll then face are much higher than traditional credit cards, sometimes reaching up to 27%. This resulted in these borrowers paying an additional 23% of their in initial purchase, and the payoff rate for those with less than prime credit was only about 70%. And while there's certainly something to be said about allowing patients to receive treatment when they need it, it's not solely the high interest charges that can impact patients. Some patients reported to the CFPB that they did not understand they were signing up for a patient credit card or did not fully understand the terms they were agreeing to. Several complaints indicated patients thought they signed up for a payment plan offered by their provider. And in contrast to participating in a payment plan offered by a provider, creditors pursuing collection on these patient medical credit cards could use much more aggressive methods than a provider's office, office would when collecting the same amount. Additionally, there is discussion around whether recently passed protections for reporting medical bills to credit reporting companies includes these bills charged to patient medical credit cards, meaning those who are already struggling to make their payments could subsequently have their credit impacted. The CFPB ultimately concluded by stating that these products may in fact cause more confusion and hardship, particularly for lower income patients than other payment methods offered by providers. Coming at a time where addressing medical debt has been on legislative agendas across the country, this latest report may cause lawmakers to take a second look at payment options available to consumers. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Falana, very much. That was Falana Houston. Falana is the Assistant General Counsel at Zellas. 
As you heard us mention at the top of the broadcast, what do you do if you discover that one of your physicians has been practicing without privileges, perhaps for as long as five years? So what do you do and how do you protect your revenue? Well, here now to report our lead story is Dr. John K. Hall. Dr. Hall is a physician and attorney. So Dr. Hall, this doesn't happen all the time, but what do you do if and when it does happen? Well, thanks, Chuck. It may happen more than we think it does. So I had an unusual call from a colleague a few weeks ago. He was panicked because his hospital has a physician who has been performing procedures for which he has no privileges. As he described the situation, the physician has never had privileges for the particular procedure. The physician is employed by the hospital and the hospital has billed the technical and professional components for at least the last seven years. The the physician's training included the procedures in question. He has a verified case log from his training a decade ago. He appears to be competent, although his performance has never been evaluated since he took his certification exam. So my colleague asked the question, does this mean the hospital has to return the payments? Does he have to refund both technical and professional fees? And how far back does he have to look? To start with, I told him this is probably not as uncommon as he thinks, but the answer is going to be extremely fact dependent. And the analysis in this case relies heavily on two things. The first is the result of the XREL Escobar case I've discussed previously, and the second is a reverse false claims analysis. As it turns out, only the conditions of participation at 42 CFR section 482.22 cover privileges of the medical staff. In the case of fee-for-service Medicare, privileges are generally not a condition of payment. The outcome in these cases will depend on three things, as I noted previously in Escobar and the worthless versus worthless segments. First, were the procedures performed competently? And this would seem to be a fairly low bar, but only if the procedures are monitored, something that is unlikely if the provider does not actually have privileges. Second, does the claim constitute an implied certification of compliance with applicable billing requirements? And third, is non-compliance with the certification material? That seems confusing. That's why this is a very fact-based analysis. That means in the case of fee-for-service Medicare, every claim may need to be reviewed with particular attention to any conditions of payment in effect at the time the service was rendered. Unfortunately, Medicare Advantage is no more straightforward. Each MA plan would be very likely to use the Medicare rules, but the plan may have contractual requirements for privileges. These claims may need to be reviewed in the context of the contract in effect at the time the services were rendered. And finally, commercial indemnity plans may have requirements for privileges for specific procedures as a condition of payment. The bottom line is that failure to privilege and monitor physicians may be costly, and hospitals must assure that privileges are only available to qualified providers and that these providers are assessed through an ongoing effective privileging program. Hospitals must assure that safeguards are in place to prevent scope creep so that the providers are prevented from providing effective elective care beyond the scope of their privileges. And third, hospitals must have programs in place to detect out-of-scope practices. Finally, I can't stress this part enough, do not review prior claims without the guidance of qualified counsel. Payers want money back. Don't make it easy, make it hard. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dr. Hall. That was physician and attorney, Dr. John K. Hall. You're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Strict regulatory compliance continues to be a challenge. 
A variety of factors, including a deluge of regulatory news, make it feel like you're navigating turbulent waters. Now, more than ever, you need to be sure everyone on your team, including those working remotely, is following the same guidance and moving in the same direction. A subscription to Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast is your port in the storm. For a single money-saving fee, your entire team can access the full library of exclusive Rack Monitor educational webcasts featuring nationally acclaimed compliance and audit experts. Register at the Rack University Bookstore today. David Glazer, we got a couple of minutes to chat. Uh, let's take a look at some of the comments and questions that will be coming in. Okay, David? You bet. So, Chuck, I couldn't agree more with Dr. Hall's astute observation about how you don't need to refund just because a physician lacks privileges. And the only time that there is a condition of payment that I know of associated with privileges is when a uh, the requirement for a person to qualify as an inpatient, you become an you're admitted by a physician with uh, valid admitting privileges. So in Dr. Hall's example, I completely agree a refund isn't that, but it gets fuzzier. And it's, it all comes down to this distinction between conditions of payment uh, and conditions of participation. And as he was describing, you don't generally need to refund money simply because you have failed to meet a condition of participation. Mm. But when you fail to meet a condition of payment, then you need to, to crack out the checkbook. Okay, very good. Uh, thanks, Dave, uh, very much. Now, joining me now with his insight and analysis of today's news stories that we've been reporting is Dr. John Zellum. Good morning, Dr. Zellum. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to everybody. <clears throat> Just a couple of comments this morning, and that is Ron's story about uh, United Healthcare having a double standard, which is, seems to be the standard for them. Uh, when they talk about having two different versions for the ED coding, and the hospital, the, the hospital has one, United Healthcare has the other. This is also rumored, but I'm pretty sure that it is true that when it comes, since um, United Health Group owns uh, Change Healthcare, which means they own Interqual, United Healthcare has their own version of Interqual, their own. Uh, the, the, their own interpretation of it versus the version that hospitals have. So again, it's the typical United Healthcare double standard. And the other comment that I have has to do with the uh, presentation given by John Hall, and that is the the the, the credentialing or or the privileges that people have. And I, I put some of the blame on the hospital. Uh, there is a process called credentialing. And as a, as a general surgeon in the past, I was having everything that I did needed to be credentialed. And if I started doing a new procedure, I had to be proctored and I had to do a certain number of cases by somebody who has experience in it. I don't understand how somebody can have privileges without being credentialed in those privileges. And secondly, where is the oversight? Where is compliance when it comes to this? Basically, I think there's some deficits on the part of the facility that this occurred in. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Zellum. That was Dr. John Zellum. He is the founder and the CEO for Streamline Solutions Consulting. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Money. And I want to thank our guests today, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Polana Houston, 
Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Dr. John K. Hall, who reported the lead story, and of course, Dr. John Zellum. And one more thing before we go, never miss a Monitor Monday. Simply go to rackmonitor.com forward slash podcast and join a community. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Hey, and be sure to listen to me tomorrow when I'm on Talk 10 Tuesday. We're going to be reporting a very exclusive story on revenue cycle. Uh, that's going to be with Susie Vestovich. And she is, of course, uh, with Tia Tech. They are the sponsors of the series. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. Monitor.